Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. And I hope that you will join us in the, the in our conversation today. Uh, we're going to have some very interesting things to talk about today. We've got a couple of interesting questions that we're going to deal with. My name is Drew. I'm in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and with me today is Stephen. Stephen, you're down in Gettysburg, right? Yes, sir. Welcome, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Jeff is also with us. Uh, Jeff, you're in Exxon, PA, right? I am in my usual place, Exton, Pennsylvania. I'm not out in some other place like some people I know. You mean Scott, who is normally from Gettysburg. And Scott, where are you coming in from today? Is it Alabama or Florida? I tell you what, where I spent the night, I was actually on the state line. If I walked across the street, I was in Alabama. And if I stayed on my side of the street, I was in Florida. So I'm right there at the border. Oh, I'm glad you're here. And don't you have someone with you? I'll let you introduce. Yes, I'd like to introduce. I'm down here with Brad Sullivan, and I really appreciate Brad, and I've asked him to join us today. Uh, and so he's going to be joining us on the program today. Brad, welcome to the program. Thank you all. Appreciate you all letting me join today. I've uh, watched you all several times, and appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the show. Good to meet you, Brad. Yep, nice to meet you, Brad. Glad you're here with us today. Um, and Noah Andrews, our web engineer, is also here. Hi, Noah. How you doing? Okay, you're doing fine. <laughs> Did you ask how I was doing? I didn't hear that. Yeah, I was asking about you. I'm, how are you doing? I am excellent. How are you? <laughs> I'm glad somebody is doing excellent. There you go. There you go. And you'll notice, uh, you know, we never, this is an ad lib program. We don't, we don't have a script here, and you can tell that. Um, maybe we need one. We oh, what'd, you say, Jeff? what'd you say? Maybe we need one. Yeah, maybe we do. Right. Um, we want to invite everyone in our audience. If you're coming in from the Zoom app, you use the Q and A button on your on your screen. Click it. Have that box open and type away your questions. Or you can even call in coming in from the Zoom app using your computer audio. But just click the the, the uh, hand icon button and that'll tell us you want to come in and talk with us uh oh, and if you're coming in on the steven's facebook page Steven? yep you know, just use the comments below and we'll get to your questions and comments as soon as we can all right uh with all of that said where do we go from here the first thing we want to talk about is prayer um, we got a question in from Chrissy. I don't have her question right. Yes, I do. I have it right here in front of me. And the question is basically. I've got it here, Drew. Please, because something changed on that screen. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, so Chrissy asks a really good question about prayer. She says, are the prayers I pray for a loved one really going to change anything? Or is it just for their comfort and mine? So that's the question from Chrissy C. Are the prayers I pray for a loved one really going to change anything? Or are they really basically just for, to comfort them and to comfort me? Uh, how would we go about uh, answering that question? God, you want to? Well, let's start. I, a couple of passages come immediately to mind that show that it's both for benefit from God, but it's also benefit from us. And I'll start with throwing out one that shows that it does benefit of us, but we shouldn't assume that's all benefits. Uh, what did Jesus say when he talked about prayer? He said, your father 
knows that you need these things even before you ask. Ask. Mm-hmm. So d- is it that God doesn't know it's important to us? No. God, and, and he needed the information. No, he already knows. So is there obviously a benefit in us worshiping God, in us taking our petitions to God? Yes, there is. But beyond the benefit to us, what would be a good passage to show that, uh, well, I'll even start it, that the prayer of <laughs> yeah, James chapter five is. I'm assuming the the verse you're starting to quote there. James chapter five, starting in. Um, well, let's really just start back in verse thirteen. He gives a lot of instruction here. He says, "Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is if is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord." And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then it gives an example from the Old Testament in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Wait, wait a minute, Stephen. Are you saying the Almighty God of heaven, who created the universe, will listen to a human being and respond? No, no that's not what Stephen's saying. That's what the, James, the writer writing by inspiration, said. Yeah, <laughs> not for just clarifying me. that. This is not Stephen's opinion. This is what the writer of J- James actually wrote. And it's interesting in that story, of course, there's an allusion back to 1 Kings, the 17th chapter, when um, Elijah says there's going to be a drought. Uh, 1 Kings, the 17th chapter, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Judea, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. It's interesting that, and and then it, and there wasn't for three and a half years, and then, and, and then we turn over to chapter 18, and and uh, Elijah uh, his servant to check if there's rain coming, and, and sure enough, there is. It's interesting. Neither in his in the in the uh, beginning of the drought, nor in the end of the drought when the rain came, do we have in the Old Testament an explicit account of Elijah praying and saying, "Lord, bring a drought. Lord, bring rain." Uh, but there's an implication here. This prophet is saying there's going to be a drought and here. This prophet is telling his servant, go and look for the rain that's going to come. And, and James then lets us know that it was Elijah who prayed to God. And, and the interesting thing from the epistle of James is Elijah doesn't make a big deal about the fact. I mean, James doesn't make a big deal about the fact that this Elijah was a prophet or a miracle worker. Is, he was a man of, is the King James, I think, says, a, li- a man of like passions as us. Um, and so the point is that we can appeal to God in prayer, and it makes a difference. It's not an automatic difference. It's not putting your coin in a, in a vending machine and out pops a candy bar. But there's a God who hears our prayer, who loves us, who knows what is best for us, and it may not be what we ask for, but he is also concerned about our concerns and what we ask can you give another example, one of you, uh, about where God wanted to do something and was going to carry this something out, but because a human being approached him and intervened, 
he changed his mind. Is that possible? Isaiah had come to Hezekiah to let him know that he needed to set his house in order in Isaiah chapter 38 uh, because Hezekiah's life was about to come to an end. But then we read in verse 3 Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord and in verse 4, uh, beginning, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, of, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. So he, he changes from what he intended to do. And I'm yeah. sure there's other examples of that too. So God does respond to us when we speak to him. But as Jeff said, it doesn't mean it's an automatic. And so if we'll come back and consider like how Jesus compared in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ask and you shall receive. And he pointed out, which of you, if your child asks for a fish, would give him a serpent, or asks for bread, would give him a stone. If you, knowing how to give good gifts to your children, even though you're evil, how much more does God know how to give, in other words, good gifts for us? That's in Matthew chapter 7. Now, so let's think about that relationship. Do we give things to our children that they ask for? Sometimes. Yeah. Can it, should they feel that th- there is a point in able to express themselves to us, that if they need something, that they will get what they need? Yeah, we should. We should, should they assume that they're in charge and we have to cater to their every whim? No. And so... In, in the analogy, who are we? we? We know who the father and the son is in a domestic house down here. In the relationship to God, God's the father, so that puts us in which position? The son, the child. The child. And so we, it, it, to appreciate the avenue of prayer, but not have the expectation that every request will be granted. And there's a certain amount of comfort in realizing that we can turn it over to God and he knows better than we do. There's, there's yeah. a, uh, we got a comment from our brother Ortiz up in New York city. And it's an interesting one. He mentions Abraham. He's talking about when God had indicated he was going to destroy Sodom and Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you destroy it there? And I know we don't want to spend too much time here, but this is interesting because uh, you see God's willingness to listen to a, a man. Um, so Abraham says in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away? This is uh, Genesis 18, 23. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the wicked, uh, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I ventured to speak with the Lord, although I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. And it goes on and, and, and Abraham gets it all the way down to 10. Apparently Abraham thought that surely there'd be 10 righteous there and the Lord destroyed the city. 
Right. Well, that illustrates several things, but one thing I think it illustrates is there is a God who is the creator of the universe, but such a puny one as you or I, or even Abraham, whom we regard as a great man, but before God, he's just a, he's just one little creature. Uh, God would listen to him. Stephen? I think as we're trying to balance this point out, God listens to our prayers and there are things that God can change if he wants to because of our prayers. But at the same time, even righteous people at times asked God for something and God did not answer them in the way they'd hoped. I think about Paul in second Corinthians chapter 12 with the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was three times he pleaded with the Lord. And of course the answer was my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And it wasn't because Paul was somehow doing something wrong because sometimes when we feel like our prayers aren't being answered, we think, Oh, well maybe I'm doing something wrong or, or there's something specific. And if there's something we need to repent of, let's repent of that. But we shouldn't assume that just because God is not answering in the timing that we had hoped or in the way that we had hoped that there's something necessarily wrong with our praying. Jesus himself prayed three times, let this cup pass from me. And he still had to drink the cup. Okay. That's talk. We're talking about the benefits and the reactions between us speaking to God and him responding to our prayers. But the, there's also part of the comment was benefit of comfort. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, there's a lot of comfort in it. L- listen to this passage from first Peter, first Peter chapter five, verse. Well, let's start with verse six, first Peter five, six, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. One of the ways that we can not deal with anxiety is by turning it over to God. And hopefully, we'll, you know, we can hope that what we ask for will happen, but if it doesn't, then that wasn't the will of God and accept that. Like a child who can have a request, lodge a request with his parents, but if his parents are wiser than him and know the bigger picture than him and they answer it to just relax in, you know, my parents know better and I accept that. Yeah. So I think in short to answer Chrissy's question, uh, yes, God can change things. There are specific things that God is able to change when we pray, but that's not a guarantee that he will. But bringing things to God brings great comfort to those praying because we're putting it in the hands of the Almighty God. And it brings great comfort to those being prayed for because they know that other people are thinking about them and petitioning God on their behalf. And there's great comfort that comes from that, from knowing other people are praying for you and thinking about whatever God is our good father. He knows how to give good gifts to his children and his children are asking him for what is best in this situation. And we can be confident that God will give what is best. Just one quick comment connecting this with what's going on in our culture today. We hear about various tragedies and we hear something I hear over and over in the news media. Somebody says our thoughts and prayers go out to him, to the person who was hurt um, or to the person who lost somebody. What that reflects is people have lost this idea that we truly are praying to God who can do something about things. 
our thoughts and prayers shouldn't be going out to the person for whom we're praying. Maybe our thoughts go out to him, but our prayers should go to God. Right. Good. All right. That was a good question, Chrissy. We invite people to bring in or send in their questions at any time during the show or before the show. Uh, go to BibleQuest.tv and uh, submit your questions there. Uh, is all right? We go to the next uh, topic. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Go ahead, Scott. Let's talk about how we answer and what are some effective ways of answering, good ways to answer that honor Christ, to help us to be Christ-centered. And uh, think about some questions that people ask sometimes. People ask, what faith are you? What religion are you? What are you, etc.? Uh, if you say you're a Christian, what kind of Christian are you, etc.? Or people say, what does your church believe? What do you do, uh, etc.? What are some effective ways at being Christ-centered? And um, I'm going to start the first one with uh, asking Brad this question. Uh, he mentioned this to me the other day, and I thought it made a really good example. And we've got some other things we talk, want to talk about the uh, today that'll tie into this and to understand it, a lot of this is going to have to do with how we view the church and how we view Christ. And there's two very important things there, but they're not the same thing. Christ is, well, let's, let's just start with this. What are some of the differences between Christ and the church? Just real quickly and briefly. Christ is the head, the church is the body. Christ yeah. is the one who gives the instructions. The body is the one that is, is made up of the people who obey those instructions. Yeah. Christ On is the, the Savior. the problem of sin, well, but is there a difference between Christ and the church? Yeah, he's the Savior. Christ yeah. is the Savior. The church is the people that need saving. Yeah, yeah. He's the sinless Holy One. We're the ones that were enemies of God and, and had the sins that needed to be forgiven. All right, so with that kind of as a background, uh, Brad, why don't you tell us here, kind of in a nutshell, about a conversation you had several years ago that helped uh, bring you to the Lord? Well, when I was uh, 17, uh, there was a young lady that I went to high school with that uh, we, we talked quite a bit on the telephone. And, and one night we were talking about religious things and I asked her what she was I was at the, I was would have considered myself a Baptist and so I asked her what she was and she said I'm a Christian and I I said well I, I know you're a Christian you know we, we're all Christians but but what are you and she just repeated again I'm a, I'm a Christian and I, I finally that went back and forth for a little while, and I finally asked her, you know, outside of the building where you worship, what does the sign say? <laughs> and she said, University Heights Church of Christ. I said, all right, so you're Church of Christ. She said, no, I'm a Christian. And that uh, that piqued my interest. Um, the conversation, you know, that evening uh, didn't necessarily get me where I needed to be, but it, it, it piqued my interest enough that I wanted to know more about what she was uh, talking about there. Whereas if she had just come out and said, well, I, I'm church of Christ or I, you know, that I, I don't know where the conversation would have went or where I would have ended up. She ended up leading me. Uh, and what was it? I, I really liked that story because I liked the way she answered and what, 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 what's the focus, what's the power in how she answered? 
it wasn't about uh, it wasn't about the building. It wasn't about the even the group of people that she uh, worshipped with or gathered with. Uh, her emphasis was on you know following Christ, and that's what uh, that's where. Yeah, would you would you go so far to say it wasn't about the sign on the building? It would no, it was not. Yeah. And and I've often made this statement. I'll, I'll tell people, in fact, I'll probably make it this week because I'm down here doing child training services. Service. And uh, one of the points I'll make, I'll say, do not teach your children to be faithful to the church. Amen. Teach your children to be faithful to Christ. And why Scott, is that that's a radical thought in today's world? That is radical. And, and a, an Ill, easy way to illustrate it is this. When Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 4, he asked them to share that letter with the brethren over at the church in Laodicea and encouraged them to get the letter written to the church at Laodicea and have it read among them. Several years later, the church of Laodicea is addressed, and what does the Lord say about that same church a few years later? Oh, they, they were neither hot nor cold, and he's ready to spew them out of his mouth. But if they had a sign in front of that <laughs> meeting, and they changed the words, the church of the spewed, you know, <laughs> if they had a sign, the sign probably still said the same thing that it had before. <clears throat> But if, if those children had been taught, you be faithful to this church, what good would that have done them when the church became lukewarm and was following Christ? They'd have just got spewed out with everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be part of the church of the spewed. <laughs> yeah, wow. Excellent so, point. So what you're saying is if somebody asks us and says, what does your church believe on this or that? I mean – I guess one of the ways we can respond to that is, it, well, it really doesn't matter what my church believes about that. Um, what does the Bible say about that? What does Christ say about that is really the conversation we need to be having. Cause a lot of times things can dissolve into just, well, my church believes, well, my church believes, well, and, and then just kind of whose church is, is kind of, it, it misses the point in, in a lot of ways, those discussions dissolve into it puts the emphasis on some group of people rather than on Christ. Doesn't the problem come in when we, we read a scripture that says uh, that the, the, the church is the support of the truth, the pillar and support of the truth. And so that is where the context might lead us to think, well, then we're, we're teaching the truth. And so what does your church teach? And that's the question was asked me. What does your ter- church teach on this? But like you said, Stephen, the church doesn't teach church supports the truth. Isn't there a difference? Yeah. And the church, I think the important thing is in people's minds, when they think of church, a lot of times people are thinking of something external, something that if you, uh, you know, they're looking for the sign on at the front of the building, you know, and they think of that, well, that's a church and there's people who come to that church. And when we think of the church as the scriptures speak of the church, that it is a group of saved people were not the source of the teaching. Now there are times where, you know, we identify, well, this is what we would teach, but that's not really the crux of the question is Jesus is the one who's the teacher. And it's our job to conform to him 
not to somehow make our group the standard to which all other groups must now attain. What's this? There will be teachers in the church. We should teach Hebrews by reason of time. You ought to be teachers, uh, et cetera. But what we should be pointing to is pointing to Christ, pointing to his word. Timothy's told to preach the word uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If any man speaks, speaking as it were the orals of God, we should be pointing people back to Christ, pointing people to his word instead of pointing to ourselves. And people can get in a self-righteous echo chamber where they decide we're following what the Lord said. And so we're his people. And so since this is what we do, that's what the Lord said. And there was a jump right there. That's that's not where it comes from. We have to keep coming back to Christ. But you were saying before, it reminded me uh, years ago, a friend of mine, she was talking to somebody and she, she asked her friend, what do you believe about this? And she said, I don't know. I'll have to ask my pastor what I believe about that. Yeah. So, the, it, you know, when we talk about the church, we're talking about a, Stephen, you use the phrase, a group of people. Um, the word in the New Testament, of course, is used, it means assembly. It may be referring to a particular assembly of people literally assembled in a particular city, Gettysburg, say, for example, Harrisburg, wherever. Or in the Bible, it's used of all those who are assembled in Christ, um, all those who are called out of darkness into God's light. And so they're assembled in the light of God. They're not geographically assembled in one place. But wh- whichever sense we're talking about, uh, whether it's a local congregation or all those who are saved, Jesus is the savior of the body. The body is the church, Ephesians 5.23 and Ephesians 1.22 and 23. Um, whichever we're talking about, the church is not something that creates doctrine. We learn doctrine. We learn Jesus' teaching. We get it from God. And God's people uh, is what we're talking about when we're talking about the church. So we're talking about the people who follow God's teaching. Now, Stephen, Drew, you, I, Scott, Brad, we may at various times be at different places in our understanding of God's teaching. Um, We don't get together and have a vote, decide, you know, which is it going to be. God's word is what determines the teaching. Yeah, and that's such a different way of thinking than, than a lot of people that you run into and you think about, okay, well, there's all these different churches and people can kind of either go to one or two extremes. They either think, well, everybody's just kind of doing the same thing and it's all kind of one and people have different preferences, but, and then see the, the problem with that is, well, that can't be true because people are teaching things that are diametrically opposed to each other. Um, and so not every denomination can be right. Not every so-called church can be following the word of God because they're doing different things. Um, But the other extreme is that we then take our group and y'all have really already mentioned this and think, well, because my group is the right group, everything we teach must be what the Bible means on that. And the problem is what we need to do is when we're all coming back to the book, we all have to change. We all have to, to figure out, okay, if there's something that I'm doing that's by the book, well, good, let's keep doing that. And if there's something that we're not doing by the book, and as you illustrated earlier with Laodicea, maybe we're doing the right thing right now, but that doesn't guarantee we're going to continue in the right thing. 
And so if we cultivate a loyalty to Christ, that's going to keep us on track rather than cultivating a loyalty to the church, whatever our concept of the church is. Scott, was it you or Jeff? One of the two, you, you talked a little bit more about the nature of the church. Jeff just did a lecture recently on that. Uh, Jeff, why don't you hit uh, a point or two from that lecture and share it with us? Well, the basic idea I was trying to get across, talk, now I'm talking about the body of Christ. And if, if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Jesus, the head of the body, which is his church. I already mentioned Ephesians 5, 23. He's the savior of the body. So what we're talking about is a, a, a metaphor of a human body being used to represent this group of people who've been saved by the blood of Christ. And one of the things that I was trying to get across uh, is all down through the centuries, there's been an, a, an acknowledgement that there is something that is the one church. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there's one body, the church that we're talking about. Jesus is the head of that. But over the centuries, what has um, been kind of at issue is what is the nature of that church? Is it something that we as human beings can outwardly perceive? Or is it something that is inwardly defined? Now, if we're talking about a local congregation, of course, that's something outwardly you can see. It's the people who are inside that building on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. or whatever. But if we're talking about the body of Christ, those who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that is not something that is outwardly definable. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and there's a, there's a heresy that's going around. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying the resurrection is past already. And Paul responds to that, not saying, oh, no, this visible church that I'm aware of may get destroyed. He responds to that by saying the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. And let them name the name of the Lord depart from unrighteousness. So I guess at two points I'd, I'd make there. I, I cannot see somebody's heart. Um, it's our tendency to look at things outwardly. But God, who knows the heart, knows who are those who are subject to Christ, who have been saved by the blood of Christ. He knows who are his people. My responsibility is not to be able to list everybody who is, who is right with God. My responsibility is to depart from unrighteousness. Let me throw in a text, Jeff, that makes that point. It talks about in 1 Timothy 5, 19, against an elder, don't receive an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Yeah. What if there's only one witness? And what if he really saw what he saw, and it's so, and this guy got away with it? Yeah. Well, let's keep reading. It says, some, this is 1 Timothy five twenty four. Some men's sins are evident going before unto judgment. Some men also, they follow after. Well, you made a point too, also kind of a similar point. If the body of Christ is something that is outwardly perceivable, um, that would be consistent with the idea a lot of people have. It's made up of this list of congregations. And if it's made up of congregations, then it would include somebody like the fornicator at Corinth. And you also made the observation it would not include it would not include the um, 
people who were cast out by Diotrephes uh, where he was mentioned in, in third John. Yeah. You had a presumptuous man that cast some faithful people out of the church is the Lord in heaven saying, Oh, Mark their book. <laughs> they were serving me, but erasing from the book of life because Diotrephes kicked them out. So if we perceive a religious organization as the church, which has the power to kick people out or put people in, we're thinking of the wrong thing. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ that we read about in the Bible is something that is inwardly defined. I, in my lecture, I went to Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, and talked about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Under the New Covenant, all of God's people will know the Lord. The only way you're going to have that is if God's people are those, they're defined as those who know the Lord. Uh, and that's not something that's outwardly definable. The Ethiopian eunuch is another example. Years ago, I read a book. It's called The Lost Years of Jesus. Uh, I claimed that Jesus was uh, with the Essenes. And it goes on to say that some of the baptisms in the New Testament are actually not Christians, uh, baptism of Christians, but Essene baptisms. And he made that argument of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he said the Ethiopian eunuch did not become a Christian. He became an Essene. You know what his proof was? It doesn't mention him being baptized into any church. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Were there any <laughs> examples of people being baptized into a church in the, in, in, the, in the New Testament? Well, it depends on what you mean by church. Exactly. If we talk about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into one body. But I'm not baptized into a congregation, and I'm not baptized, I shouldn't be, if I'm following the teachings of God's Word, I, I'm not baptized into a denomination. This is one of the problems with many of the Baptist denominations. Their view of baptism is actually that it makes you part of their denomination. Here's a really good story, and Jeff, I think you've heard it before, so if I get some details wrong or you remember something more about it, uh, correct it. But years and years ago in the 1800s, there was a fellow in North Alabama. I don't remember his name. Uh, this is either early or mid 1800s. And at the time he was an ordained Baptist preacher, but he had been reading his Bible and he had seen what the Bible said about baptism. And a few of those things would be things like Acts 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 22 verse 16. And now why terrace thou arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Romans 6, baptized into his Christ, into his death, etc. He started teaching baptism, and he got his license pulled. So he was no longer allowed to be an ordained minister of the Baptist church, but he still went to this community and once a month and would preach at this farmer's house. Then one day, the daughter wanted to be baptized, and he hesitated. He said, I, my license has been pulled. I don't have a church I can baptize her into. The farmer said, it'll put her in the kingdom of God, and that's good enough for me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we have, go ahead. There's a comment coming in from a viewer, uh, but I don't want to interrupt your train of thought there, Jeff. Did you have one to add to that? Or? Uh, this is a good comment. It's a good question. Let's go ahead. All right. It says here, um, Herman says, I try to encourage people to read the Bible while they still attend their denomination. I never encourage anyone to not listen to God's word by not attending their assembly. Am I wrong to encourage them not to leave 
until they read or read and understand why they have to leave. Hmm. So I think in, in, in his approach to, to dealing with that, what he is doing right is he is not putting the focus on our group versus your group, our congregation versus your congregation. You know, sometimes I try to make this point. If, if we try to convince people they need to be a part of our congregation as opposed to that congregation because we're better, we're more righteous, whatever, you know what? Sometimes I find people who have not been baptized into the body of Christ, they may do a better job of praying than I do. Uh, I may find people who do a, a better job of serving others than I do. But the, the point is, I'm not the standard. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from our sins. And what this is all about is being identified with Christ. And baptism is into Christ's death. So one thing that, that Brother Ortiz there is doing right is he is pointing people to the word of God and saying, look at that. And that's going to tell you what you need to be doing rather than starting with, you need to be with me and my people rather than you and your people. Yeah. Brad, we haven't heard from you for a few minutes. Uh, any thoughts on uh, this or the other questions so far? Yeah, I've, I really have a thought on both of them. Um, I'll make a comment or ask a question about what we're talking about here because I'm currently studying with someone that attends a, a denomination across town and or I don't guess you'd say across town, across the pasture here. <laughs> <laughs> We are in the rural that, part of the panhandle. <laughs> I don't mean that as an insult. I, I, I love it here. I, I wouldn't have it any other way right See, now. My kids went to a high school that was locally known as Cal Pie High. <laughs> so so that, that's been my approach with him. We've studied truth uh, from God's word. I, I want him to learn the Bible. I want him to make the Bible his standard of authority but I want him to make the decision. I told him at the very beginning because uh, someone at the congregation where he's attending uh, warned him about studying with me. And I told him, I'm not trying to get you to join my church. And I, and I mean that with all of my heart. I'm not, it's not like a bait and switch type of thing. I, I do not want him to join my church. I want him to study God's word and find Christ and become a follower of Christ. Right. And I feel like if he continues on that path, he will either, because he's going back there after our studies and he's teaching them and they're either going to run him off at some point because they're not going to put up with his teaching or he's going to, you know, convert folks there and, and we'll have even a, a better. So I, right. I like the approach he's talking about. I guess a question that I have is, you know, we, um, we're not assured of tomorrow we're not assured that we're going to finish this uh, discussion today. So, you know, by not pressing, there can be the attitude or the thought of well, what happens if the Lord returns before he decides that he needs to be baptized into Christ. And, and I, I have a question and then a comment, and I'd like to hear your all's comments. Uh, my question is, are we are we playing with borrowed time by prolonging the the study and without getting you know right to the point very quickly with them that look there's a decision you need to make um, and then 
if that is our answer, if that's what we decide, you know, we, we've got one hour to convert this guy, to get him baptized. Are we not playing into a little bit of some of the responses we sometimes get of, well, what if you're on the way to the baptistry and he dies before he's baptized? You know, is he going to hell? Um, so I don't know that I have a great answer to, you know, the time frame. I want it to be as quick as possible. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't want to force somebody to do something they're not, they don't know yet. Well, and that's the key. Scott, you go ahead. This is an observation. I don't know. I, I may be reading too much into this, so I'd, I'd like y'all's comment on it. Uh, and, and I'll preface I'm going to look at Paul's time in the synagogues just very briefly. And I'll say this first. When we're dealing with inspired man, there is you know, the degree of inspiration, which that will be given him. And there's also human involvement. Uh, you can't read Paul's letters without also seeing his human involvement as well. Uh, so God working through the Bible, possibly speak. But here's the point I want to mention. When Luke takes note of something, there's often a point that he takes note of it. First missionary journey, Antioch of Pisidia. How many synagogues does Paul, synagogue lessons does Paul get in before he's run out? Well, I have to go back and look at Antioch. Yeah. I'm going to say, uh, was it one? He got in one, and they said, we want to hear more the next oh, that's Sabbath. Right. The next Sabbath, the whole city, but 44. When the Gentiles came out, the leaders started opposing it. Paul shook out his garment. You judge yourselves unworthy, I'm born Gentiles. He works from Gentiles. When he gets to Thessalonica, how many synagogues does, sermons does he get in? Uh, was it three? Well, he yeah. was there for three uh, three Sabbaths. So it could have been two weeks or more. But he was in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. Right. He gets to Corinth, and he's teaching. Um, it says in Acts chapter eighteen, but. It seems that he increases his level of teaching once Paul and Silas get there. Mm -hmm. He had also been making tents before. Right. When Paul and Silas come, he's strengthened not only by they probably brought funds because now he doesn't have to be tent making anymore. He's got more time to teach. He's also got his his, uh, uh, co-workers there. And it's the text sounds like his he steps up the message. By the time he gets to Ephesus, how long did he spend in the synagogue? Uh, in Acts 19? Yes. Three months. How long? Three months. There's a progression. And there's a lot of difference between getting in one lesson at the synagogue and getting in three months. Now, always by the end, what what happens? He gets kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, Corinth, he didn't get kicked out very far. He got kicked out, but he turned around and went in next door. Next door. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> it might have annoyed him. Uh, but Luke didn't have to include that detail. So I may be reading too much into this, but it looks like Paul has repaced his message and is getting in more time of building his case as time goes by. He also spends a whole lot more time at Ephesus overall than he spends at some of the That's other true. places. And so I don't know if Paul going into a town had a plan of, I'm only going to be here like a month. So I got to hasten. 
There could uh, be, yeah, there could be things. Or if he's saying, hey, that. I'm going to plant here, I'm going to make right. tents, and I'm going to stay here for three years, he, that might have affected some of Although his. Luke's uh, telling does seem to put an emphasis on Paul's schedule being somewhat determined by the reception he got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, we, but, we're running out of time here, but you just raised a couple of other points that then I'd like to ask based on what Brad was saying. And it has to do with the urgency, but we don't have any time left. What do we do? Well, we have to come back to it next time. I had an observation too, but I guess I'll let it go. We're out of time. Why don't we pick this up next week if we have more questions that come in from the viewers and we get our thoughts around what we just talked about and add further questions. I'm sure we can can invite Brad back again to talk with us more about it from his perspective as well. You want to wrap it up there, uh, Scott? Thanks, everybody. Brad, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate y'all having me. We appreciate you being here. Drew, Stephen, Jeff, thank you very much. Good to be with you all and with all those of you listening on Facebook or by way of the Zoom app.